well it feels to me that this is a, a special time and uh, there's a special sense of the Lord's blessing and for that I'm thankful. I want to take a few moments just to reflect out of some of the story of Joshua. We had a bit of a summary from the end of the book of Joshua there. Um, and particularly this, this, this rallying call of Joshua, as for me and my house, I've made my decision. I've drawn a line in the sand. We will serve the Lord. So Joshua is one of my sort of favorite type characters in the scriptures. And I think we learn so much from him. In many ways, he's a type of Christ. He prefigures some of the nature of the Lord Jesus. In fact, in, in Hebrew, his very name means Savior. It's the Hebrew version of Jesus. And um, Joshua, is, as you see his story unfold, it, it's a fascinating uh, process, I think, by which God begins to deal with him and prepares him. He was mentored by Moses. He was his assistant. He went with him. He went up the mountain. You don't read a lot about Joshua's response. We read more about Moses, but Joshua was up the mountain. Very similar in some ways in which Jesus took Peter, James and John up the mountain as, as part of his discipling and mentoring of them. He was a worshipper. There's a lo lovely incident in... Uh, in uh, the book of Exodus. And that was a time when in the wilderness, you know, Moses was instructed how to build the tabernacle because God wanted to be present with his people. He's always wanted to be present with us. Firstly through the tabernacle, then the temple that's constructed in Jerusalem, but now the new temple, as Peter explains, which is being built through living stones, you and I. God desires to be present. And Moses would go into the tent to meet with God. And there's a little episode where it says he went, goes into the tent, the pillar of cloud comes down representing the presence of God. Um, and the people would stay watching while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever they saw the cloud, they knew that God was there. He was in the hood. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, the writer says, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. And then there's a little phrase, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And I love that. He yearned, he longed for, Carol shared last week about seeking the Lord. He was, there was a heart of a worshipper in him, his love for the Lord. And, and I think that played out in his faith and his conviction about the God who will never leave us, the God, if he's promised it, it's going to happen. And so he and Caleb, who was an old dude, about 80 years old when they entered the land, they were the two men generation that God took into the land and of the 12 spies sent into the land to survey they were the only two who believed God could do this because the others were so afraid of the giants in the land this comes out this is Joshua um, a courageous and worshipper of God there's a new work I believe God is called to it builds upon it's not a, 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 a you know it's not take us in a different direction but it's adding, I think, to what the Lord has been doing and what the Lord wants to do. And I think there's things we can learn from Joshua. So with Joshua, as with us, I think there's a new God thing. There's a new thing that God is doing. You know, the people have been taken out of slavery. They'd, be, they'd spend a whole generation in the wilderness learning some things and not learning some things. It was a short journey from Egypt to the Promised Land but they were unwilling 
to enter when God wanted them to. And so, until we learn, we can't really take possession. But eventually, they would, under Joshua's leadership, Moses, take possession of the land. And it was so important to do that that they had to connect with and know the real God. They'd been living amongst Egyptians and their worships of God, their worship of God. That's about as much as they knew. But God, of course, had miraculously, through the signs and wonders, delivered them out of captivity. Just in the same way, through the miraculous sign and wonder of the cross and resurrection, we are delivered out of captivity to sin, selfishness, ourselves. But now we've got to learn to live the new life. And, and for Joshua, there's a choice you've got to make. Will you embrace this revelation of the new God and serve him wholeheartedly? And if you don't, well, what are you going to do? We've got the God of our ancestors. We've got the God of the Egyptians. We've got the God of the Amorites, the people in the land. You will serve a God. The choice is, are you going to serve the God of revelation or the God of your own making? There's a new thing. In many ways, for Carol and I, this is a new thing. It's a new God thing. We're about to leave Austin. I know you thought we left a while ago. Actually, next month we'll probably leave Austin. We never expected that. Honestly, I think there are things God is going to do that you will not expect. But for us to take hold, we are going to have to fight spiritual battles. And that's why I think at the beginning of Joshua, the message is, as, as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. Trust me. Be bold, be strong. I came across, I, in fact, I, I heard about it quoted. There's a guy called Thomas Paine, as the, the, the revolutionary splitting away of the U.S. from British rule. And he was a commentator and a writer. And he, one of his famous quotes is this, Those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. You know, freedom is the gracious gift of God. But we must hold on to it. We must not let it go. We must, like Paul, not use our freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And we can do that. But we have to do battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil if we are to enjoy the blessings that God wants to give to us. And so this is about the formation of who we are. It's not just what we do. It's primarily who we are that God is interested. I believe more than anything, this is a journey inward of character and identity. And we're all on that journey. The, the, the question is, are we progressing on that journey? And what are we taking hold of to help us in this? I'm on that journey. You see, in the Gospel writers, there's, there's, you know, Jesus appears on the scene. There's, a, there's kind of an explosion of power. There are signs and wonders. But then he begins to teach. This is a way of life. This is not about just signs and wonders. In fact, he tells his disciples, don't get too excited about the power. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that you're children of God. Understand there's an identity to be taken hold of and lived out. And for that, you're going to have to repent and change and become something you are not and cannot become on your own. And it will take you, as it took Jesus, as we read in the Gospels, to a cross, to sacrifice, to suffering, to letting go, so that God can raise you up. That's the journey of the human life. That's the call we're called to. It's a kingdom call. It's a call to become mature. 
And I'm still a work in progress. But it's an invitation for those who would press on into the new thing God constantly wants to do. Secondly, there's new leadership that comes with Joshua. There's a big transition. I mean, Moses was, that's a kind of a difficult act to follow, isn't it? Seriously. There are big shoes to fill. But he's dead. And now Joshua was responsible. And again, I think that's why the first, the clarion call is be bold. Be strong. There's a, you know, I, I feel that myself. There's a, there's a, there's a sense of, uh, it's, it's really not down to me, but you feel some of the responsibility and the challenge to come into a, a community and into a culture and a country that's going to challenge and has challenged me and Carol. However, we are not alone in that. That is the good news. But I think there are things to learn as there was with Joshua, as there is for all of us. And the word of God comes to Joshua to, to cross the Jordan and to take possession of the land. And in a way, God establishes Joshua that just as you know, God led the people through the Red Sea, the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, again, the waters of the Jordan are parted and Joshua walks into the promise through the miraculous, through the, the gift of God. And God continues to act like that. And we should pray for and anticipate things like that. And then there's new identity. There's new, in a way, rhythm for the people of Israel. They'd been a, a, they'd been a people held captive. A large group of people. There are different understandings of how many people actually left and when they left. But nevertheless, they had a, a corporate identity. However, that was not going to serve them to take possession of the land. And what we see in, um, in, the, in, in the crossing of the Jordan and in the inheritance being taken hold of is people understanding their identity through the, the tribes and families to which they belonged. And God divided up the land through each of these tribal groups. And they had to find a new rhythm of being both at times together, because they're also called to gather in Jerusalem to celebrate and remember who they are. There's an important sense, let's not lay hold of, we are a people together. But for most of the time, they're now living in their locale, in their families and tribal groups, under a slightly different identity. And they're having to do battle in their local area, together. Now, the wondrous thing is that you know, for parts of that, Joshua invites them to, to function as a whole nation. But to then live into the blessing, it was important that they did so where they were, where they lived, where their feet touched the ground. And the reality is, is the results were mixed. We like to think God wondrously delivered everything and provided the land. It probably, it wasn't really until King David, who was probably... 300 or so years later, if not more, depending on which dating you go with, that actually they began to get close to what God wanted to give them. And it was because of differences within the tribal groupings. There was a mixed response. They did not all say, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It's not guaranteed, but it is promised. And we live with attention, as we do, I believe, here. The promise is there. God is faithful but he's looking for a people who will receive, take hold, and walk in the newness 
of the blessing that God has given. So, one key thing for me that I take out of this is the importance of households. We are the household of God because we're the family of God and we're the temple of God and all these images. Um, but what we see in the pattern of the early church was they, they, they worshipped in the temple, the central gathering, but they also worshipped and celebrated in homes, in their communities. They were known and there were places where they enjoyed one another. They broke bread, they ate together, they did life together and people looked on and wanted in. I think people today are less looking on and wanting in to just the gathering of the whole church, but they're wanting places to land and to belong and to be known and to be cared for and to be encouraged and ultimately to be mentored and discipled. And I think that's an important dimension that the the Lord wants to lead us into. And I've been working with not just our leadership team, but a, a kind of a, what I'm calling the leadership community, people who are overseeing and serving ministries, inviting us to, to reflect and pray and think about what does it mean for us to see organic communities emerge, not because we organize them, but because of driven by loving relationships and the life of the Spirit, households connect. I'm not just talking, households vary today. They're not, you know, two parents and 2.4 children. They're the whole mixture, and we reflect that, actually. In fact, we have very few traditional households in our community. And so, that's not an issue. Because households can be all sorts of shapes and sizes and constituents. However, we're called to a sense of a rhythm of shared life together. People are going to know that Jesus is alive and with us by the, the, the quality of our community and our love for one another. And I believe that's found in rhythms of ordinary life. And it's in those places it's safe enough to be ourselves. It's, it's a place where we can all be known. It has struck me from time to time, like we did the Valentine's dance, and hearing people say, wow, I sat with so-and-so, I'd never known them. I, I got to know so-and-so. These are all long-standing people of the church. It's not a guarantee we get to know each other deeply because even a group this size, you can't. So we need a place that's smaller, not just for us, but for the, those that the Lord will add to us, I believe. A place for everyone, for strangers, for outsiders to be welcomed. In a moment, we're going to invite you to respond to our invitation to invite Ev to be an elder within this church and to be a part of the leadership team. Do you know what the first positive quality of an elder is in the scriptures in the book in the pastoral epistles. It is to be hospitable. Hospitality. This is the number one. And I think it's so because this is the nature of God. His community, the Godhead, is hospitable. They want to invite you in to come and eat with them. We do it around a table. To come and share in their love for one another to come and be healed of our brokenness and our woundedness so that we can actually enjoy the blessings of the gift that is given. To be known in the ordinary, the everyday. This is hospitality. To welcome the stranger. It was a part of Jewish culture that anyone visiting who was a stranger, it was incumbent upon the community to receive a stranger and to give them a bed. Our culture has drifted so, so far from that. We are a disconnected, disjointed, 
distracted, but very lonely culture. And I think the greatest gift we have is the gift of hospitality, where we can welcome people in to come and eat with us. And isn't it fascinating? Even Jesus in the book of Revelation says that to one of the churches. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I'll come in to eat with them and them with me. Isn't that extraordinary? Again, it's hospitality. Anyway, I think that's important. Are we people who are hospitable? Do our lives reflect that we are open to the new person, to the stranger, to the, the foreigner? Be they Brits, ex-US, <laughs> transplants, or be they from whomever. God, God's heart is strange. He not wants nobody to be left on the outside. That's a challenge in any community because we get used to our rhythms. We get used to the people we're used to being with. And I think the Lord wants to challenge us. And at the end of next month, a friend of mine, Louis Clark, and two other people are coming to share their experience of discipleship and mission and church through hospitality and friendship. And I encourage you to be there. Saturday, March the 28th, I think. Um, as a part of this journey that we are on together. I've talked about the concentric circles of relationships. I believe it's the strength of our home life, significant relationships, if we're married or whether it's our friendships or extended family. If the gospel isn't making a difference there, how can it make a difference as we go into other relationships in the church, in the community, in the workplace? And as Tish was saying, that's where this must be evident but I think it's fueled from fundamentally the dynamic of our love for God and our relationship with Him and our conviction about His promises and His presence. But as I manifest and work that out in my family, those close, my Jerusalem, to my Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, we can do extraordinary things in India and have done. But if there's a price being paid by, by things going wrong at home, I think we're back to front. And fundamentally, that is for children. You know, the, the Jewish spirituality was all about the children. It's all about the generations. And Jewish identity is found in knowing my generations because I'm the son of so-and-so who's the son of so-and-so. And you would go back those generations. It's why I think I was watching that show, The Windermere Children, about children of the, the Holocaust who were brought to the UK and, and tried to be sort of um, helped, assimilated back. But they're cut off from family. They've lost their whole family. They've lost their whole sense of identity. That is so devastating and traumatic to the Jewish psyche and mindset. It's important for us as well, I think. We don't often realize it. The blessing of the gospel is to a thousand generations. And I think church that sees children on the side rather than front and centre, our first priority has got it wrong. But sometimes we think they, they just get in the way and, well, children are children. We've got to love them as children. We, remember, we were all kids once. Because this is about passing something on. This is about perpetuity. This is about not me, but the next. Giving it away. Anyway, enough said about that. One final thing. Jesus said this, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. 
All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. He's taken an agricultural picture, literal picture of life and growth that would have been very familiar. By the way, it's really nice. We've got crocuses coming up in our lawn. Haven't seen those for years. But it's really nice to be in this sort of climate again. Grew up with all that stuff. But we recognize, but we don't understand how growth happens. However, there are stages. You don't jump to the harvest. You've got to be patient. You've got to wait. I've said to some, in fact, maybe most of you, that I believe this is a year for us to focus upon disciple-making. I think if we are going to serve the Lord, it's a a fundamental commitment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to love our neighbour, one another. And then to teach other people how to do that because the Great Commission says go into all the world, make disciples. In other words, as I've taught you, you teach others. That is the principle. that's That's what the Christian life is. That's what it means to serve the Lord is to love God, love each other, and teach others how to love. And that's why the community is the best place for that, a place of loving relationships. If we're trying to teach something with no fruit of love, what are we doing? We're just teaching a theory. Sadly, the church has been like that too much, not Jericho Road, the church as a whole. We've got very heady and rational, and it's relational through and through. So our starting point is, am I, do I feel equipped? To be one who can teach another. And, and if not, how do I get there? And, and so my heart is, how do we start to orient whereby we anticipate and expect everybody to be looking to know how to be equipped and released to disciple others? Because what if people come in? Who's going to disciple them? That's our job. And so that's 2020. The rest is a bit fuzzy, but my hope is that next year we will look at evangelism. Now, no, we don't do evangelism until then. We don't do missions till then. We stop doing discipleship after 2020. No, this is cumulative as we keep going forward. And it's cumulative from what the Lord has already been doing because we're all at different places. However, I think there's a call. How do we proclaim the gospel? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. People need to both hear it and see it in action. And I think that will be something we will explore and work on. And then perhaps, Lord willing, still around and alive and kicking, then future years might be that um, we will look seriously at how do we both raise mentors and leadership in order to support the work that the Lord wants to do. Jesus was very intentional about this. And he understood the nature of growth. And I think he's inviting us to reflect on that ourselves. And then finally, the harvest. The harvest. Why should just churches in India plant? We are called to reproduce. A healthy sign of life is reproduction. All things that grow reproduce. If we don't reproduce, we are not growing. We are not alive, potentially. We are dead. By that definition. And I think that's uh, reproducing in our personal lives. It's reproducing in our communities. It's reproducing in our churches. That is the normal Christian experience in life. Who feels ready to go and do that? It's very threatening and challenging, isn't it? But God has said, 
This is what he's doing. He will do this through us. That's why we sing these songs that we trust in you, Lord. Yes, you're with us and for us. Yes, you'll never let us down. But do we live as if it's true? And that's where we need to be less alone, more connected, more praying together, more hearing the word of the Spirit through one another. If we're to enter into the blessing and not allow the culture to overtake us, which it can will. My hope is in the Lord. And I go back to his prayer for us in John 17. Jesus is praying for us. We, we are not making this happen. We are responding to him. Just as he in himself could do nothing except what he saw the Father doing. And that came through his connection with the Father. That is true for us as well. But I take great comfort from the fact that he's praying for you and I. Even now. And part of his prayer, it was this, John 17, I have given them the glory that you gave me. So the very glory borne by Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, has been shared with you and I. I in them and you in me, Jesus says, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Our unity is found in him, in found in relationship to him. And if we've received him, We are in the spirit of unity. We are one with God and each other. And now we're invited to live like it's true. And he's praying for us. And he said, as we are brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is how important our unity is. But again, it's not because we kind of work something out and we're kind of pleasant and nice to one another. No, we, you know, like that word at the beginning, we have to fight for the freedom that has been given to us through Christ. Preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And as we press into relationship and love, where we reconcile, we work through conflict, we understand difference, we start to appreciate and value diversity, We celebrate the successes of others rather than ourselves. We give it away rather than take it for ourselves. We make it about children and others rather than ourselves. We will know the blessing. We will know more than we can cope with. But it's the only way, I think. But I'm up for that. So as for me and my house, I think, is that fair? We will serve the Lord and want to hear and respond to this call. And to be a part of a community who are believing for the very glory of God being revealed to this valley and beyond. Way, way, way beyond. Not for anything we've, but because of Him. Amen.